Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Good Mixtape. My name is Drew Reynolds. And this is Roger Sukukbe. And we are here excited to have another episode today focusing on all kinds of things uh, related to social work practice um, with Latinx communities, as well as topics around leadership and psychotherapy and more. Uh, We have a fantastic guest, uh, Erica Sandoval, coming up. But before we get to that, Roger, how are you doing? Drew, I am doing excellent. Uh, It is springtime other than the pollen, but springtime to me just means uh, newness, uh, sort of uh, resetting the button coming out of uh, winter. And more importantly, it's the end, almost the end of the semester. (laughs) That's true. We're at that moment uh, right after spring break as we make our way towards the end of the semester. I know students who might be listening to this podcast are probably thinking about how to finish their work done uh, uh, before the end of the semester and, and faculty certainly trying to get papers graded. And for those of you who are out, you know, in the in the field doing practice, um, you know, also kind of finding ways to kind of keep the energy going as we get into summer. Drew, how have you been? I have been good. I It's been busy, uh, but a good kind of busy with um, lots of fun work and projects coming up. And so that has been a lot of fun. And you know, Roger, I've had a lot of joy in the last couple of weeks um, because I think my we my work that I've I've been able to do has been really uh, purpose driven and meaningful. And in that sense, I sometimes forget to be grateful for that uh, because there's sometimes it feels like oh, there's so much to do. Um, but we talk a little bit about that in this episode about uh, the opportunity and the joy that comes when you're able to find purpose in your work. And I think that some of those themes we talk about with um, with our guest, Erica, coming up in a few minutes. And so I think that that's a great thing to be thinking about as well. Coming into the uh, spring, you talked about newness, Roger. Uh, it's an opportunity for us as, as professionals to kind of think about those new opportunities that lie ahead for us and those moments when we can think about, hey, you know, what are these new opportunities and, and how can I continue to seek out those purpose-driven moments in in my life, my work, and my career. I love that purpose-driven concept, right? So is what I'm doing right now purposeful, not only for myself, for my life, for others as well, but how is it going to inform what my next step is? it will be? And so uh, I like that. I like that you mentioned that. And, um, and that is something that I'm phasing into now as, as uh, I'm, I'm getting... Um, a little bit more years under my belt as a social worker, uh, 20 plus, 20 plus years now. Um, but then also as I see my children grow, right. So uh, my daughter will be finishing up her freshman year at college. So now I get to say that I am a parent of a sophomore in college. Right. Uh, and, and I have, a uh, uh, my sons who are, who will, one will be a senior next year and my youngest will be an eighth grader. So it's, um, Trying to figure out how to how to lead a purpose driven life. Yes. Yeah. You know, I was reflecting, Roger. I'm coming up on five years of starting my nonprofit consulting practice. Um, this summer it will be five years, which was kind of like a, a big milestone as I was starting to think about it. Because when I started, I didn't even know if I was going to get through months two or three, much less make it to five years. Um, so I'm certainly very excited about about that milestone coming up. But it's made me reflect a lot as well on on why I started doing nonprofit consulting practice and kind of where I was in my career when I made that decision. You know, I I kind of grew up in a mentality where it was like, you got to go and and get a good job and find a good employer and find something that's going to last kind of a long time, you know? 
And I found myself where, you know, life throws you curveballs where, you know, I was moving to Atlanta and um, I had to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And, you know, what I did at that time was do some deep soul searching to say, like, what is it that I most enjoy doing and how can I kind of make that be the work that I do every day? And whether that's working for an organization, for a for-profit, nonprofit or government agency, or, or does it mean that I, I have to start my own practice, which is what I ultimately ended up doing? Um, and in our episode today, we talk with a leader in social work who did a lot of that on her own as well um, and gave a great examples of what it means to be able to kind of take that step in, in either starting your own your practice or initiative or organization. And for those of you who are listening today who identify with that in some way, maybe you're a social worker who's thinking about starting a private practice. Maybe you're um, somebody who's working in a agency right now, but you want to start your own nonprofit. Or maybe you've are already started something and you kind of feel like a lot of things are on you right now to try to figure out how to make it happen. You know, I think this episode is really for you um, to be able to kind of see what it would feel like to, to find that purpose and meaning in something that maybe you start for yourself. Right. And also feeling that it's okay to be excited about something like this, but also having some fear and anxiety as well. Like all of that can coexist in the same space and it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, and um, uh, help me correct me if I'm wrong here, Drew, but I'm assuming that um, part of that uh, that leap of faith you took in 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 creating your own uh, consulting firm was also not only exciting but a little bit scary as well, you know, because it 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 you felt like, oof, like here we go, and I'm not sure if the next step I'm going to take if there's going to be something underneath that, you know, under me to to catch me. Yeah, you know, that, that totally does feel that way. You feel like you're kind of stepping out on your own. And, and this comes to another theme that came up in our interview uh, with Erica Sandoval, which I just absolutely loved. And she talked a lot about, um, she never was like saying it's about me. You know, the book that she has put out is a collection of stories of many different uh, members of the field sharing their stories and the work that she does. She always kind of talks about the communal aspects of it. Even when we asked her to talk about her work um, in the uh, New York NASW, she talked about leaning on the expertise of those on her team around her. And so I think that that we have this kind of myth, I think, in our culture that sort of idolizes individual entrepreneurs um, in some ways. And yet, when I look back at my own experience, and I think this comes out in the interview as well, it's really the relationships of the people around you that you cultivate and nurture and um, how you kind of work with and assist and help others um, and find ways to continue to grow those relationships, to value those relationships and to, to build up the social capital around you. Uh, to be able to make uh, projects like these work. And I find that that's where all of the meaning in the work is anyways, you know, like all of it is all the joy, you know, comes from uh, the people you meet along the way. So true. It's that power of connection, that power of connection. So we're going to uh, dive right on into this interview after our musical break. And uh, we hope that you enjoy this interview with Erica Sandoval. Hello, everyone. Uh, we are joined today by Erica Priscilla Sandoval, who is an award-winning mental health practitioner, speaker, spiritual healer, podcaster, advocate, and four-time published author of the Latinx or Latin A in social work, available in both English and in Spanish. 
She is the founder and CEO of Sandoval Psychotherapy Consultation, known as Sandoval CoLab, where she oversees a team of social workers with love and compassion as they support individuals in therapy and lead diversity, equity, and inclusion work for nonprofit organizations, universities, healthcare facilities, and corporations. Erica is also trained in ketamine-assisted therapy, which is a holistic breakthrough approach to an awakened mind in healing trauma and depression. Erica founded Latinx A in social work to cultivate community among Latinx A social workers and build a more diverse pop to build a more diverse pipeline of future social workers. Uh, Latinx A in social work received an honorable mention at the 24th annual International Latino Book and Film Awards. Latinx A in Social Work Volume 2, released on October the 5th of 2022, went number one in Amazon Psychology and Social Work new release categories. And recently, there was a journal that was released to accompany the books. And so, Erica, welcome to the mixtape. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here with both of you. Erica, we are so happy and so thrilled that you are taking time out of your busy schedule um, to do this with us. We are social workers, uh, not only by by our profession and our trade, but we're social workers at heart and spirit. And we're just so, so glad that you are here with us today. Uh, Erica, we would like to know a little bit more about your social work journey, right? So how did your social work interests, uh, your social work education help prepare you for social work practice in micro, meso and macro spaces? I love that question because I feel like my life prepared me for it. It wasn't really my social work journey. It was more coming to this country as a three and a half year old, almost four year old Ecuadorian. I was born in Ecuador and I came to this country with my mother following my grandmother. So it was the three of us navigating um, a new country, a new language, a new world together. And as the youngest of my sisters who were born later on, I had to navigate a lot of things with my family, such as translating for them, um, advocating for them as a young girl, as a young uh, daughter, as a young grandmother. So just watching my mother's and my grandmother's experience and knowing that we were different, knowing that we did not have access to the resources that others may have had access to, um, knowing that systems weren't really made completely to support our, to support our, um, us being here, really kind of made me really think about all of the struggles that we that we had and the traumas that we experienced, not only as individuals, but as a community. And so as I moved into my life um, at 19 years old, my parents actually moved back to Ecuador and I stayed here. And I stayed here with my grandma, my grandma, mi abuelita. She lived only a few blocks away. And um, I ended up getting married probably two years afterwards because I felt so alone and 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 I fell in love with someone, but I just felt like, oh, I needed family because I didn't have it. And 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 my grandmother was just the only one here with me. And so I didn't feel safe. And getting married and navigating that at such a young age was also another, another experience, which probably could be another podcast. But long story short, when my mom came back, she needed to find a job. And I had already started school when my daughter was born. I had her at 27 and I started going back to school. Then I graduated with my degree first from a community college, then a four-year college. And while I was graduating, I was also waiting tables 
And I was working with all of these amazing Latinos and Latinas that were from different countries that were undocumented. And I felt like I was in my elements, you know, and I would just constantly hear what their struggles were and what they were going through. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. I know that this is my family story. Yes, this is my story. And so when my mom was applying, she asked me again to translate. And this is what started. She asked me to translate at the hospital for special surgery, major hospital, number one hospital in the nation for orthopedics. And she said, can you just translate with HR and see if they are going to offer me the job? I've had all these interviews and I'm like, sure. So I said, sure, but with like reluctance, like I did not want to be the translator anymore. I'm like, sure. You know, and I'm on the phone and the HR person's talking and she's like, tell your mom that we're so sorry, but she, you know, we wish that she knew a little bit more English. And all of that anger came back for me. Like, why didn't you learn English? Why aren't you Americanized enough? Why are they, you know, this? And I had to translate for her. But then as I saw my mom's face just kind of crumble, just feel like so sad, the compassion kicked in. And I started translating with so much compassion and love. And the HR person said, wow, you speak so fluently. You're amazing. What is your degree in? I said, clinical adolescent psychology degree. They're like, have you ever considered being in a hospital? And then all of a sudden, by the time I was off the phone, she offered me interview. My mom looked at me and said, this wasn't my job. This was yours. So you better go for that interview. I was like, but I make so much money at a restaurant. She said, go please for that interview. And by the time I got home from the interview, she offered me a job in the department of social work. And then I was again connected to a community of social workers. And I never thought I could go to social work school because I never thought I could even graduate from college yet get a master's degree. And a few years later, I was just mentored by the community and they're like, you can do this. You're, you're like a natural at this. This is what you do. It's what you love. And I applied to one school only. Said if I apply to NYU and they accept me, I'm in. And I remember like kissing the envelope, putting it in the mailbox, like blessing it, las bendiciones and all of it. And then put it in. And then when I got that email and letter, I was just crying and bawling. And I was just like, I'm doing it. And then that was the career that started social work. So it found me in a way. It really did. And if it wasn't for my mother and my grandmother, I don't think I would have like navigated the system the way I did with so much love and compassion. Wow. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, there's so much in, in what you shared through your story, which again, we, we so much appreciate um, the vulnerability. I, I know that we've, when I chat with students or just folks in general about vulnerability and how difficult it can be at times, because when we become vulnerable with folks, we're exposing ourselves. We're, we're, we're just saying to the other person or folks uh, I trust you with this information and I trust that you are going to know what to do with it. So thank you again, because I feel a connection here with what you just shared. I, I have a similar trajectory. Um, I, my parents are from Peru and I was, um, I'd, I'd say I was fortunate enough to have been born in the States because that provided different spaces for me than if I were born in Peru. But I do remember being the family translator. I do remember mm-hmm. being the individual who was asked to do things that I didn't really want to do, but I knew I had to do it um, for a sense of of familia. Like you have to do this for your family. And then later on, I, I discovered that really it was more of a advocacy uh, because if I wasn't going to advocate for my family, who else was going to advocate? 
And in your story, you know, I, 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 I jotted a few things down as you were talking about this, this incredible journey, the power of connection through the thread of commonality, right? And so you know, that is what I feel like as social workers, we provide communities that sometimes where there is this thread of commonality that can that can really where we we utilize our compassionate heart but we also introduce empathy right and and thank you again for just sharing all of that uh with us and and with our listeners absolutely i i share because one it's my authentic self but also so whoever's listening they don't feel alone and they know that they're not the only ones that are going through it or have gone through it and they can find some solace in, in, in building that community and just validating their own personal narrative. So thank you so much. So you've had a, quite a career um, starting out in, um, in social work, at least working in a hospital setting. Um, I saw also from your background and bio that you've worked with the Make-A-Wish um, Foundation and that you work with a number of different organizations. You're a therapist as well. And then you also got involved with NASW. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your career journey from the lens of leadership and kind of what are some things that you have learned as a social work leader that you can share with our audience today? Oh man, there's so much gems I could drop, but I think one of them is you can't go at it alone. You have to organize. You can't be the only person in the room feeling the same feeling speaking the only truth you have to organize. Um, my career trajectory is very interesting because I always felt like doors opened for me um, in a way because I stepped into it with purpose. Um, I left hospital for special surgery uh, to go to Make-A-Wish because I saw how much Make-A-Wish was positively impacting the patients that I was serving and I wanted to reach more Latinos that can access wishes. And we knew, Make-A-Wish knew that they weren't reaching enough Latinos in the communities, um, predominantly the kids in the Bronx and Queens and Brooklyn and those neighborhoods. Parents are not going to accept a wish. So just really wanting to give them that support and access and have a face that they can trust and a voice. That was my goal. And when I did that, it opened the doors to NASW because I was in the community and you don't really see a social worker doing macro social work at a nonprofit. I was, I became the regional director and I was traveling from all over Buffalo, Rochester, all of New York city. And I started building community councils. Uh, so in the macro world, if you think of, I always see myself as a macro social worker with clinical skill set. So I want everyone to know that they can be all of them. You don't have to choose one. So as I'm outreaching and engaging and connecting in communities and building, 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 and then we all are building together. And as I'm in different communities, I went to an event and I met the president, actually the executive director for NASW New York City at one of the events. And, and I was with my two younger sisters. And I say this because they're both social workers. So one of my sisters was getting an award and I was there supporting her and the president, the executive director was there and like, we ran up to her and I'm like, oh, this is amazing that you're here in this organization, the woman of color. This is like, the, you know, we don't see representation. And as I was doing that, 
I didn't realize that I was creating a relationship because I was validating her, her being in that space, her deserving that space, her, 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 we needed someone to represent um, us. And so the relationship continued to build. And so I was a member and then I was not a member. I was a member. So a lot of different reasons why I dropped off. And one of the main reasons was because it wasn't representation and we weren't, and they weren't doing the work in the communities that I was a part of. And I started thinking, well, I can't be angry at that if I'm not doing something about it. So as I was getting more and more involved, um, I was always part of the Latino Social Work Coalition because that was my baby. Um, I, I felt like I finally had a home. That was another organization I was a part of. And I was moving into NASW and I said, okay, if I want to see the change that I want to see, I have to be in the door at the table with individuals that want to see the same change so we can create the change together. So that was part of the reason why I joined. It wasn't for the flowers because you don't get flowers being a president of NASW. You really don't. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of um, pains because not everyone's always going to be happy with the organization. People are going to have feelings that, you know, they're not doing enough for us and, or they're not representing the, 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 um, you know, the, the bills we want, we want to advocate for, or just even unionize. Like everyone felt like, why aren't they standing up for social workers? They're not a union. They're, they're an organization that purports professional development and growth. So there was a lot of pains. Um, and there was a lot of times where I had to take a step back and really look at it and say, this is not personal. This isn't personal. As a leader, you're going to encounter the pains. You're going to encounter the blows. You're going to encounter people not being completely happy with you. Um, but it's not you. It's the system. So you're just a representation of the system right now. So as you're leaning in to a leadership position, just know what's your purpose are you aligned with this mission? Are you aligned with what the organization is doing? If you want to create change, make sure you have the people that are around you to organize and make the change happen. And don't go at it alone. Don't step out into the fire. Don't try to be the superhero. Don't do that. Really create a community that you have different people with different skills. Like the board was amazing. I would not have been able to lead without my incredible board. Each person had an incredible skill that they brought to the table. I needed fundraising. I needed advocacy, policy. Everyone had that skill. So you go to those people because together you are more wise and more capable of doing anything as long as you're connecting and you're bridging and you're honoring everyone's leadership quality. So I think for me, don't go at it alone. Use your incredible community around you and don't step out into that fire by yourself because you don't have to be a superhero and you're not always going to have the best days, but it will be worth it when you see change that you've been wanting to see. Hmm. Wise words, definitely wise words. Makes me think that I should remind myself that I um, it's okay not to have the answers to everything all at once, and I know that I'm I'm a, a Drew's known me for a number of years now, and I'm really um, that's something I that I work on or try to work on every day is being okay with not having the answers to everything all at once. And uh, as I as, as no go ahead, 
No, we're not. We're not going to have any of those answers. We may, we still don't, you know, we're still trying, we're still all scratching our heads of why things aren't working. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're not always going to agree on everything. Very true. As, as I heard you talk a little bit about your experience in social work and just in community, you know, you've got a lot of work in nonprofit in the nonprofit sector. And we have listeners who are either nonprofit leaders or hoping and aspiring to become nonprofit leaders. You know, we have students, we have social workers, we have, you know, a little bit of everybody out there, right? Um, what I what I heard in your message is the power of social capital, right? The power of networking, the power of uh, connecting with people, you know, connectivity is what binds us at times. And that it's okay to utilize some of that social capital to get uh, access to those spaces where perhaps there isn't any type of representation, right? And so I, I appreciate how you how you shared with us that that power of social capital, and and especially as social workers, especially as social workers of color, um, knowing that we not only do we in the room, do we belong at the table? At times, it's okay to say, you know. I'm going to make a table and my table will have a little bit of a different sense to it. And that's okay. I agree. I, I think that um, I love the way you frame that too. I always imagine myself as um, a person that can lead my own team. I've, I was, I worked so hard in nonprofit sectors and it's really difficult to get to the C-suite in nonprofit sectors. Um and no matter how hard you work, sometimes you will not get there because the systems that aren't meant for us. But you can create your own seat at the table and you can become your own CEO. And that's what I chose to do during the pandemic. I said, okay, I'm being laid off. I was laid off from a nonprofit. It was the scariest thing in my life because I had financial distress and trauma um, that I inherited through my ancestors. It's, it's, it's just happens organically because you are living in the space where you're seeing your grandmother, your mother, your father, your grandfather respond to the world, to the environment in a certain way that you end up thinking that's normal. So you inherit all this trauma. And as soon as I realized I was getting laid off, I said, you know what, I'm going to own it. And I'm going to walk into the space and it wasn't make it, which it was another nonprofit, um, they actually recruited me and they made me a senior director. I got paid 20 K more. I was like, yes, this is the best thing ever. I'm making all this money more, blah, blah, blah. But little did I know that there was going to be a lot of pains with that as well. So I felt like during the pandemic where everyone was getting laid off, I was not the only one, but I knew that I had one thing under my belt and that was a profession and that profession was social work. And I've always been a clinical social worker. I've always worked in communities. I've always worked at, with my um, LMSW as a as a psychotherapist. Never did I stop while I was working full time. So I said, I'm going to just lean into just focusing on just a mental health piece, which has always been love of mine. And as I did that, I built my own table. I said, I walked into the space and I said, hey, I think that the, you know, the writings on the wall looks like you're going to have to do a second layoff. What if I help you as a senior director? Let's not harm the rest of our staff. Let's do it together. And even if it's me, 
I'll be more than happy to accept myself out gracefully. Let's look at a date. And it was like a shock because I took ownership into my own hands and we had a date. And by then I had time to take that LCSW exam again because I failed it. And then I was scared to take the exam. And I said, you know what? I have nothing left to lose now because this is my livelihood. So you're going to take that exam. You're going to stop canceling it. And you're going to own this, this journey. So I passed. I left the organization. And I became the CEO of my own company, which has been going incredibly well, thanks to the love of the community and the need. And also the the, the team that, that, that I built together. Because we need more providers that are bilingual, bicultural. We need more... Um, we need more of us to really train organizations and how to support the the communities that that are representing a very big percentage of our country now. And what better way to do the work that I love than to do it in the space that I'm in control of finally. And it is not easy. It's scary. Um, you know, you, when you go on vacation, you, you have to pay yourself. So that it is amazing to be the CEO of your own your own table and create that space and I'll bring people in. So it's been a journey. I have to tell you. That's lovely. Let's lean into this uh, um, clinical therapeutic uh, space. Uh, if, if we're able to right now, because you were talking about how you made that shift and transition, uh, you know, you leaned into that, uh, you know, clinical side of, of your training and in, in, in the information that we shared with our listeners earlier you are trained in ketamine-assisted therapy, and it is a holistic approach. And we would love to hear a little bit about about that, about how it's 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 helpful in healing with trauma and depression. Well, most of uh, most of my life, I've I've worked with uh, clients that have underlying. You can't have multiple diagnoses, right? But we end up getting so many diagnoses to individuals and. Predominantly, if you really think of it, trauma is the umbrella of everything. And so as I was leaning into the work that I was doing and I was working with clients, I just saw that talk therapy wasn't always enough. It wasn't enough. You know, I started incorporating narrative, um, you know, narrative narrative therapy with writing. Um, I started incorporating breath work. I incorporated <clears throat> mindfulness. And then... When I started thinking about what I've always wanted to do since I was in my 30s is I really wanted to study with shamans. I did. I wanted to go to Peru and I wanted to live there, and but I couldn't. I couldn't do that. I had to stay home with my daughter. I was a single mom and I was raising her. And I just always was leaning into just that my ancestors. I'm from Ecuador, but there's so much so much um, commonality with Ecuador and Peru and, and, and the way the healing work is. And as I and as soon as I heard about ketamine assisted therapy, I'm like, I know this is not a plant medicine. Um, I know this is not coming from my ancestors, but this is something that's providing support to individuals that may have traumas that they can't process by just dissolving your ego for just a few minutes, like 45 minutes to an hour. And it's researched, proven, and effective for depression and anxiety and PTSD. And it's legal in certain states. Okay, I'm in. Let me go study. So I went to the Ketamine Training Center and I 100% endorsed this amazing training center because this is the legit training center. 
And I studied with um, Vessel, who's from The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, Alicia Skye is an incredible partner who does body work. Dr. Ron Siegel, who is mindfulness meditation guru. And, um, you know, Philip Wolf, who is the founder. I mean, these are the trainers that, that I was trained with. And now there's a community that I'm part of. And I have seen this work with my clients now that they're able to just disassociate very, it's a microdosing um, effect that you, after you're cleared by a medical professional, which is not me, it's a doctor, um, and you prescribe the medication and it gets sent to you or you bring it into the therapy or at a retreat, our doctor would administer it. You end up going into a state of unconsciousness, but conscious, like you just have ego dissolution. So you just, your ego is just quiet and you start having open heart therapy in a way, because you start unpacking things that you may not have been able to unpack because you are no longer really thinking through your ego. And we know how hard it is for our ego to get in the way of so many things. And I've seen it work with couples, couples work. I've seen it work with individuals that can't process deep-rooted trauma. The, I've seen a lot of incredible um, things happening for individuals that have been severely depressed and on medication and wanted to get off of medication. And now they're in this treatment. And we make it accessible. We make it accessible. We are not um, charging an extreme amount of money. Um, we can't bill um, insurance for ketamine-assisted therapy because it's not a billable code, but we do integrate and we do uh, um, integration and, and talk therapy with them. So we bill insurance for talk, and then we create healing circles, which are group circles that can make it affordable for individuals to come in and have this experience. And why not provide this experience for our communities? They deserve access as well. This has been, I guess you could say, it's like uh, glamour. It's like having a Gucci handbag. And I think everyone should just be able to have access to anything. And it shouldn't just be that way. It should be available and accessible to our communities. And of course, not everyone's going to be approved for it. Because if you do have uh, an addiction, if you are living with an addiction or you're recovering from an addiction, you're not, this is not the right modality. Um, and but if this is something that your doctor or the doctor that we are seeing will approve you for after they go through a medical assessment, this might be a nice way to really kind of embark on a healing journey um, to support in your in your in your reducing symptoms of depression, anxiety, and and um, even insomnia. Uh, thank you so much, Erica, for sharing and how much um, our listeners I know will benefit from always learning new and different approaches to bring to their practice and their work. Uh, I'd love to take a minute to talk a little bit about your book, uh, Latinx A in Social Work. So why is, just talk a little bit about your book and why storytelling is an important part of the community work and how this can help inform our social work practice. I think uh, personal narratives are so important in just really stepping into our selves. I think that a lot of times we have hidden behind our personal narrative. We have talked about our personal narrative with shame and creating an opportunity and a movement for all of us to be able to step in with pride, um, with wanting to 
honor our ancestors and our and, and the and the legacy that they have lived behind for us and how we got to becoming social workers or how our lives were during the path and our journey is so so valuable. Another thing is that most of the times in the classrooms, we were asking individuals of color to share their personal narratives in the classrooms. And they did not have an opportunity to just sit and learn. And that's not a that's not equitable for the students. And so we can use these stories and opportunity to not ask those questions of students that may not want to share or shouldn't be asked to share. I know that happened to me um, many times and I would leave the class exhausted and depleted and talking to the professor and processing and it was harmful and it wasn't intentional. It wasn't intentional. No one knows the harm that can be caused when someone is being put into a place of wanting to maybe educate the classroom, but the person that is speaking should not be the educator. So unless they're getting paid for it as a professor. So I said, why don't we all come together and share our stories with pride? Because we all have had some unique story that is not similar to anyone else, but there are some similarities that were not monolithic. And we can guide others to see where we have struggled, normalize it, and then also celebrate the resilience of the individual and the community. And it was it was uh it was an idea that came to me during the time that I was laid off from work um, because I was experiencing harm and I was angry. And I took that anger and I started talking to other people and I said, hey, have you experienced this at your job? And this like, yes, this would happen, micro validations, microaggressions. I'm like we should write about it and then we should write about our success. Uh, and so as we're writing about this, it just started coming together. And then the second book was more about mental health and healing. So it starts just growing. And we're not here to, to talk negatively about anyone or anything. We're just owning our own truth, our own personal narratives. And we're here to just honor our ancestors and ourselves. And we're stepping into a place that we're unapologetic and we are amplifying each other now. Now we're building this network of amazing leaders that are calling to each other saying, hey, you know, Roger? Oh, you need to connect with Roger. Oh, you know, Drew? Oh, you need to connect with Drew. Like we are amplifying each other. We know each other's skills. We know each other's love and purpose. And we're not at it alone. And also, we don't all identify as Latinx or Latin A. A lot of us identify as social workers of the diaspora, uh, Latinas, Latinos, uh, Afro-Latinos. But the reason why we named it such is because some of us did not identify as Latinos or Latinas, and they identified as Latinx. And some of us didn't, wanted to use the term that was more open to other you know, younger students and, and, and the new generation, which, uh, which also identifies that way. So we just wanted to provide it an inclusive space um, without harming anyone. I'm not, we're not trying to, to whitewash our culture. I'm a Latina, I'm a Ecuadorian. I am, you know, this is who I am. And a lot of us will say that we're like, oh, yo soy Dominicana, yo soy Puerto Rican. You know, we are honoring our roots, but we want to also provide that space for individuals that are non-binary to 
really feel like they have a space where they belong as well because it can be so isolating. And so why not, you know, why not do this in order to create more room for other people to enter the space and feel welcomed? Hmm. Erica, correct me if I'm wrong, but this did this lead to the launching of your podcast as well? It did. It did because our stories on paper were powerful, but to, to hear our voices, you know, when someone reads the story and they're like, wow, she's or he or they have gone through so much. And then they hear the voice behind the story. We have had such an incredible response. People have messaged us. They come to the summits. I mean, we didn't realize where this was going to be so we didn't realize that this was needed, first of all. I, I We did it out of, hey, let's raise funds for Latino Social Coalition in New York City, which is our, our most amazing nonprofit that we love in New York. Um, I used to be on the board and now there's an incredible board of leaders that are just doing their thing and we're raising money for scholarships. So the proceeds of the book go to scholarships for students. So let's do that. Let's share our narratives and now let's put our voice out there. And now we're promoting ourselves and each other. So for example, if you have a nonprofit or if you have a um, a clinic or if you're in private practice, who promotes you? Nobody. You have to pay for promotion. But now we're promoting each other and it's become seamlessly. Before we used to compete with each other. It's like, oh, mira lo que está haciendo, look what she's doing. Oh, who does she think she is? Oh, what is he doing? No, now it's like, yes, you go get that. Let's promote that. What else you have? Okay, we have to lift each other up. We have to amplify each other. And so the Latinx and Social Work podcast became that too. So we amplify all these amazing authors and also leaders in the community that are doing incredible things because our voices need to be heard and the community needs access to resources. So what better way to do that? It's just a win-win for everyone. It sure is. And wow, I mean, we've touched on a variety of topics through this rich conversation uh, between us today. Leadership, holistic therapeutic interventions, uh, storytelling through books and podcasts. And, and the list can keep going on and on and on because I, I get the sense and feeling that you're going to continue to do great things, not only for the community, but for yourself as well. You know, I think part of what we do, we do for others as social workers and we also need to be inclusive of an individual that we at times forget, which is us. And that's okay to think about us at times. So I am so appreciative of this uh, opportunity that we've had just to share space with you today. No, thank you. And you're right. You're right, Roger. I There's a part of me that is completely fulfilled. Every morning I wake up, I don't feel like I'm going to work. I feel like I'm just living in my purpose. And so I am doing it for me because I'm happy and I finally found joy and I'm not complaining about work anymore. And I used to, you know, sometimes you complain about work, you complain about systems and it just feels so seamlessly and beautiful because we're just building community. We're in the business of building community. So thank you for having me. Wonderful, Erica. Well, thank you so much. And so as we get clipped, Close to the end of our podcast here, uh, we always like to ask our guests to talk a little bit about 80s and 90s culture. And so um, what we'll do today is uh, we have kind of a fun prompt to ask you because we know that you're a New Yorker um, and have been involved with New York NSW. And um, so 
what we would love to do is ask if you can think of a song that either is about New York or maybe makes you think of something in New York or as associated with the memory back in the 80s and 90s um, uh, for our podcast listeners today. Oh my gosh. I don't know why KRS one just came to my head. <laughs> That's classic. <laughs> KRS one trap called Quest. Um gosh. I could probably like if we started run DMC, oh my God. It's tricky to what is it? It's tricky to rock on time. It's time on time. It's tricky. That would be it. <laughs> that who sings that one? That's it's, run DMC. Um, yeah. Run DMC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's because it's tricky out here, guys. It really is. <laughs> it really is tricky. Oh, I have to listen to that song because the world is not that easy. It is. Um, you got to maneuver it in a way. And and they're from Queens, Run DMC. So, yes, it's tricky, Run, Run DMC. DMC. But All right. we could do it. We could That's do a it. good one. There are so many songs. You're absolutely right. Uh, um, we could We could have an exhausted list of songs that we can associate with New York and New York City. Drew, what do you have? So I went a direction. Um, I am a huge fan of a song, Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues. Um, is that, that song always makes me think of New York. There's, a, there's like one lyric in there that's a bit a bit dated. So when it, we do the version, I usually cut one of the verses. Um, but it's a great song and uh, it often comes up at Christmas time too. So what about you, Roger? Well, I'm going to take a page out of Erica's book as well. Uh, there was a few choices. Um you know, the classic No Sleep Till Brooklyn. Yes, uh, by the, I love that one. By the forever uh, Beastie, Beastie Boys. Boys. Um, and then um, Christmas in Hollis by uh, Run DMC is also another classic. Uh, but then you know, Drew knows that I'm a huge fan of U2 uh, and uh, uh, their uh, incredible song Angel of Harlem is also uh, a song that that uh, that takes me back to to New York. I think about New York um, because it's actually. I, I was reading some some uh, info about this is actually a, a like an homage to a homage to uh, Billie Holiday that particular song. So um, so yeah, Beautiful. there's there's so many there's so many. I was gonna go movies as well, but you know, we we would be here all night if we talked about movies that remind us of New York. So we kept it at just songs. I love this. I. I honestly feel like the 80s was probably the best in music. Um, I still remember the lyrics. I just didn't want to sing it. <laughs> I do. It's awesome. Run DMC was a classic, right? And all of the place, all of the, the singers and the musicians that you named. So amazing. You know why I remember Run DMC? Because they always started the speech is my recital. And I could not stop giving speeches for three years. I was so over it, you know, through, you know, through the pandemic on on on, on Zoom. And it's tricky. You never know what you're going to say and how people are going to react. So I love it. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate the time that you have shared um, with our uh, listeners today. And so if folks want to learn more about you or to learn more about the book, how can they best find out about that? You can follow us on Latinx and Social Work on Instagram. There is a link tree at Latinx and Social Work. And on the link tree, you will have access to everything. Sandoval Psychotherapy, the Latinx and Social Work podcast, the Ketamine Assisted Therapy. Everything is on the link tree. So just go to Latinx and Social Work 
on Instagram and follow us. And when I say us, because the page is not about me, it's a bit, it's about all the authors and all of the books. And you're going to see a lot of us jumping on uh, podcasts, author talks. Oh, you should join the author talks. Anyone that's listening, we have free author talks for students the last Thursday of every month in April, we're having two um, because it's mental health awareness month and it's the author speaking on incredible topics. So follow us on Instagram so you can join. Thank you so much for having me at Latinx and social work. And if you want to connect on LinkedIn, Erica Priscilla Sandoval, LCSW. Erica, thank you again so much for your time, your wisdom, uh, your commitment and your passion and dedication to not only social work, but to everyone and to our community. So we appreciate, we value you so much. No, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. And I hope you both come to New York and hang out with us. It's fun. It might be a road trip, Drew. Uh, maybe we'll take the podcast on the road. <laughs> I think so. We'll, we can do a live road. We can do a, do it live from New York. That'd be great. Oh, yes. And if you ever want to connect with other authors, I'll introduce you. They're amazing. Oh, yes. So you have a network now. Definitely. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Erica. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Good Mixtape. I am your host, Drew Reynolds. And this is Roger Sucupe. Oh, let's take it one more time. It just broke up for a second. I'll try that one more time. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Good Mixtape. My name is Drew Reynolds. And this is Roger Sucupe. And we are here excited to have another episode today focusing on all kinds of things uh, related to social work practice um, and with Latinx communities, as well as topics around leadership and psychotherapy, and more. Uh, we have a fantastic guest, uh, Erica Sandoval, coming up. But before we get to that, Roger, how are you doing? Drew, I am doing ex excellent. Uh, it is springtime other than the pollen, but springtime to me just means uh, newness, uh, sort of uh, resetting the button coming out of uh, winter. And more importantly, it's the end, almost the end of the semester. <laughs> That's true. We're at that moment uh, right after spring break as we make our way towards the end of the semester. I know students who might be listening to this podcast are probably thinking about how to finish their work done uh, uh, before the end of the semester and, and faculty certainly trying to get papers graded. And for those of you who are out, you know, in the in the field doing practice, um, you know, also kind of finding ways to kind of keep the energy going as we get into summer. Who have you been? I have been good. I It's been busy, uh, but a good kind of busy with um, lots of fun work and projects coming up. And so that has been a lot of fun. And you know, Roger, I've had a lot of joy in the last couple of weeks um, because I think my we, my work that I've I've been able to do has been really uh, purpose-driven and meaningful. And in that sense, I sometimes forget to be grateful for that uh, because there's sometimes it feels like, oh, there's so much to do. Um, but we talk a little bit about that in this episode, about uh, the opportunity and the joy that comes when you're able to find purpose in your work. And I think that some of those themes we talk about with, um, with our guest, Erica, coming up in a few minutes. And so I think that that's a great thing to be thinking about as well. Coming into the uh, spring, you talked about newness, Roger. Uh, it's an opportunity for us as, as professionals to kind of think about those new opportunities that lie ahead for us and those moments when we can think about, hey, you know, what are these new opportunities and, and how can I continue to seek out 
those purpose-driven moments in in my life, my work, and my career. I love that purpose-driven concept, right? So is what I'm doing right now purposeful, not only for myself, for my life, for others as well, but how is it going to inform what my next step is it will be and so uh, i like that i like that you mentioned that and um and that is something that i'm phasing into now as as uh, i'm i'm getting um a little bit more years under my belt as a social worker uh 20 plus 20 plus years now um but then also as i see my children grow right so uh, my daughter will be finishing up her freshman year at college so now i get to say that i am a parent of a sophomore in college, right? Uh, and, and I have a uh, my sons who are who will, one will be a senior next year, and my youngest will be an eighth grader. So it's um, trying to figure out how to how to lead a purpose driven life. Yes. Yeah. You know, I was reflecting, Roger. I'm coming up on five years of starting my nonprofit consulting practice. Um, this summer it will be five years, which was kind of like a, a big milestone as I was starting to think about it because when I started. I didn't even know if I was going to get through months two or three, much less make it to five years. Um, so I'm certainly very excited about, about that milestone coming up. But it's made me reflect a lot as well on, on why I started doing nonprofit consulting practice and kind of where I was in my career when I made that decision. You know, I, I kind of grew up in a mentality where it was like, you got to go and, and get a good job and find a good employer and find something that's going to last kind of a long time, you know. And I found myself where, you know, life throws you curveballs where, you know, I was moving to Atlanta and um, I had to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And, you know, what I did at that time was do some deep soul searching to say, like, what is it that I most enjoy doing and how can I kind of make that be the work that I do every day? And whether that's working for an organization, for a for-profit, nonprofit or government agency or does it mean that I, I have to start my own practice, which is what I ultimately ended up doing? Um, and in our episode today, we talk with a leader in social work who did a lot of that on her own as well um, and gave a great examples of what it means to be able to kind of take that step in, in either starting your own your practice or initiative or organization. And for those of you who are listening today who identify with that in some way. Maybe you're a social worker who's thinking about starting a private practice. Maybe you're um, somebody who's working in a agency right now, but you want to start your own nonprofit. Or maybe you've are already started something and you kind of feel like a lot of things are on you right now to try to figure out how to make it happen. You know, I think this episode is really for you um, to be able to kind of see what it would feel like to, to find that purpose and meaning in something that maybe you start for yourself. Right. And also feeling that it's okay to be excited about something like this, but also having some fear and anxiety as well. Like all of that can coexist in the same space and it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, and and um, uh, help me correct me if I'm wrong here, Drew, but I'm assuming that um, part of that uh, that leap of faith you took in, in, in creating your own uh, consulting firm was also not only exciting, but a little bit scary as well, you know, because it, 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 you felt like, oof, like, here we go. And I'm not sure if the next step I'm going to take, if there's going to be something underneath that, you know, under me to, to catch me. Yeah. You know, that, that totally does feel that way. You feel like you're kind of stepping out on your own. 
And, and this comes to another theme that came up in our interview uh, with Erica Sandoval, which I just absolutely loved. And she talked a lot about, um, she never was like saying it's about me. You know, the book that she has put out is a collection of stories of many different uh, members of the field sharing their stories and the work that she does. She always kind of talks about the communal aspects of it. Even when we asked her to talk about her work um, in the uh, New York and ASW, she talked about leaning on the expertise of those on her team around her. And so I think that that we have this kind of myth, I think, in our culture that sort of idolizes individual entrepreneurs um, in some ways. And yet, when I look back at my own experience, and I think this comes out in the interview as well, it's really the relationships of the people around you that you cultivate and nurture and um, how you kind of work with and assist and help others um, and find ways to continue to grow those relationships, to value those relationships and to, to build up the social capital around you. Uh, to be able to make the projects like these work. And I find that that's where all of the meaning in the work is anyways, you know, like all of it is all the joy, you know, comes from uh, the people you meet along the way. So true. It's that power of connection, that power of connection. So we're going to uh, dive right on into this interview after our musical break. And uh, we hope that you enjoy this interview with Erica Sandoval. The Common Good Mixtape is a production of Common Good Data. Check out the show notes and all information about this podcast at our website, www.commongooddata.com podcast. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the handle at Common Good Mixtape. Listen to the full episode with music tracks at Spotify or directly on our website. So grab your Walkman, dust off those old cassette tapes, and listen to the next episode of the Common Good Mixtape. See you next time.